This morning, our sermon will come from Daniel chapter 3. We've been working our way through the book of Daniel in this series entitled Unshakable, looking at the unshakable nature of God's kingdom over and above every other kingdom on the face of the earth. And so in Daniel chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 to 15 together. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it, and you can follow along there. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 15 together this morning. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 66 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God? who will deliver you out of my hands. This is God's Word. Now, those of you who are fans of classic rock, you'll enjoy this. In 1981, I was four years old. Some of you are like, you were born before 1980? And some of you are like, you were only four in 1981? But in 1981, I was four years old. But another milestone that happened that year was the joining of forces between the classic rock band out of Britain called Queen and David Bowie to write a song called Under Pressure. In the song, they describe the effects of the massive pressure that people face 
in their everyday ordinary lives and they describe the effects of that pressure and how it seems to be destroying and eroding life as they knew it, causing everything to crumble. And the song begins with these words, pressure pushing down on me, pressing down on you, no man asked for. Under pressure that burns a building down, splits a family in two, puts people on the streets. So in other words, they begin the song by describing this pressure that's pressing and pushing on every single one of us. And no one asks for that kinds of pressure. It just comes upon us. And when it does, it leads people to destroy property. It leads people to the destruction of families. And it leads people to treating other people like commodities and putting them out on the street in poverty. Later in the song, they write, turned away from it all like the blind man sat on a fence, but it doesn't work. In other words, they tried to escape the pressure. They tried to close their eyes and imagine a world without it by looking away from it or running away from it and going to a place where no one else was around to clear their mind and clear their head, and yet it still found them there under pressure. Listen, we all feel this way at times, don't we? We all feel at times in life there is an insurmountable, overwhelming, mounting pressure that pushes down and presses down on us and we can see the effects of it, right? We feel it experientially and then we see the effects of it in life as property is destroyed, as families collapse, or as people, right, who are made in the image of God are treated as commodities and sent into poverty and destroys persons. And while Queen and Bowie, they identified, right, the presence of this pressure and the effects of this pressure, they never identify the source of this pressure. Where does this pressure come from? From where does it originate? And we enter Daniel chapter 3. And in Daniel chapter 3, I believe, we get a glimpse of the spiritual realities under the earthly experiences of where this kind of mounting pressure that we feel in life that ends up decaying and destroying and corrupting and collapsing sometimes life as we know it, where it comes from. See, in chapter 2, the king has a dream about the statue about a statue that has a head made of gold and its chest and arms are made of silver and its midsection and thighs are made of bronze, its legs are made of of iron and then its feet of iron and mixed clay. And Daniel tells the king at that point in Daniel chapter 2 that this vision or this dream that he's had actually represents him as the head of gold and then subsequent kingdoms that would follow after him, right? That ultimately would all be shattered by a rock that would fall upon the feet of the statue, causing the statue to fall, collapse, and shatter, and all of it would turn into chaff like it's blown away by the wind. In other words, every earthly human kingdom will collapse and be shattered and crushed one day, but God's kingdom would overthrow, outlast, and outshine all of them. That's what we looked at last week in Daniel chapter 2. And when you turn the page into Daniel chapter 3, what you find is, right, the king's building a statue. He has this dream of a statue, but now he's building a statue. Except he's not building a statue off of the specifications of the dream that he's had. He's building a statue that is cast entirely out of precious metal, out of gold. This golden image that he erects on the plain of Dura. 
Right? And you read the commentators and the scholars, and they're all almost exclusively, they will say this, that what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do was to ensure that his prowess, that his prestige, that his place in history would not crumble and be crushed like this dream that he had had, but it would endure and propagate and perpetuate throughout all generations to come. That everyone would remember the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he, is, he, 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 he casts this image and makes this image and sets it up on the plain and commands that the peoples and languages and tribes, everyone that Babylon had conquered and brought under their rule and regime would have to come and bow and give homage and worship to that image. You could keep your other gods over here so long as everything else, as long as when it was time, when the music started, right, you bowed to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had created. And I believe the source of the pressure that you and I experience in this life, even today as believers, ultimately is sourced in idolatry. Right? Because in every single age, in every single generation, there has not been a generation of Christians who has ever walked the face of the earth who has not faced pressure to worship idols in their age. Just like these three Hebrew young men who had been deported into Babylon following the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the first thing I want us to see in this text is that we find ourselves at the same kinds of crossroads that they did. Under pressure within our culture to worship idols that are made by human hands. Or human imaginations. Or human hearts. The pressure to worship false gods. See, in the same way, right, and, and the thing about this pressure, the reason it gets so overwhelming at times is because it compounds, right? Just like interest compounds, right? Compounding interest is a good thing, right? right? Because then you get make more and more and more money off of an initial investment. But in the same way that interest compounds, so does pressure. I want you to look in the text with me and see how the pressure compounds on these three Hebrew young men. First of all, the pressure, it originated, it, it started with the, from authority, a position of authority from the king, right? We're told no less than seven times, or I'm sorry, six times in verses one to seven that it's, it's King Nebuchadnezzar who had set up this image. It's King Nebuchadnezzar who commanded in the bow. It's King Nebuchadnezzar. Over and over and over again, we see the king show up in these verses as if to overstress the fact that the pressure that was falling upon these three young men was coming from a place of authority within the state. And the king only shows up a couple of more times in the rest of the chapter. So at the very outset, the sheer weight of governmental authority was resting upon these three young men. But second of all, this pressure, it grew from conformity. It grew from conformity. If you look at all the civil service folk... Okay, who are gathered there, the magistrates and the, the justices and the satraps and the prefects, all the city officials and provincial officials who are gathered there. When the band begins to play, notice what they do. What do they do? They fall on their knees and prostrate themselves before their image in order to secure their jobs, right? And their lives as well. And so everyone else around them there on the plain of Dura is bowing down before this idol that the king had established and commanded them to prostrate themselves before. 
And so there's this pressure coming from authority and from conformity because everyone else around them is on their faces before the image other than these three young men. Third, the pressure compounds and is intensified through cruelty and malice. Right? In verses 8 to 12, you see these Chaldeans who come before the king and they butter him up real good, right? Oh, you, O king, right? You live forever, right? Your prestige and renown be known among the nations. And all this buttery language, and they say, Listen, king, there are these Jews whom you have placed, because at the end of Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar places Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over affairs of the province, and they say, You put them in these positions of power, and you know what? They have snubbed you. They have turned their nose to you, right? They've, they've, mm, they, they, have, they have disregarded your command. They have disrespected your name and position, right? So they're maliciously attacking them in cruel and vindictive ways, perhaps out of jealousy because they themselves have not been appointed those positions of power and leadership. And so through cruelty and malice, the pressure continues to compound. And then finally, it becomes incredibly overt through intimidation. Look at what happens at the end of the text. Nebuchadnezzar, he says, oh yeah? Right? Bring him to me. <laughs> right? No longer are they just going to hear the decree from the herald. Right? But bring them to stand before me. And what does he tell them? He says, listen, if you're willing to bow down when the band starts to play, then all is forgiven. Everything is hunky-dory, right? We're, we're, we're good, right? We'll be thick as thieves once again. But if you don't, I'm going to throw you into a enraging, fiery furnace, right? So he's leveraging intimidation because of this cruelty and malice that he's, and he's, he's been disrespected, right? And this has been reported to him by the Chaldeans. Everyone else around them is bowing and it's coming down from this position of authority. This pressure compounds on top of them, right? And in the same way, you and I face this kind of compounding pressure in every age to bow down before false gods, to give our allegiance and affection, our love and our loyalty to things that men have made. Right? It was John Calvin who famously said that our hearts are like idle factories. They're constantly constructing false gods that will demand our worship but do not deserve our worship. Right? Because every false god will make demands upon us but none of them deserve anything from us. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, John lays out three, three raw materials that our hearts use to manufacture idols. And he talks where he talks about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are like raw materials that our hearts have been mining and now are using to produce all sorts of false gods, all sorts of idols. Now the word in John 2, 16 that's translated desires in the Greek is this word that's a compound word. It, it's, it, it, in the Greek it's epithumia. That word epi, right, on the front is a prefix that means over or inordinate or excessive, and thumia means desire. Right? And so what, what John's talking about there, and these raw materials our hearts grab up to produce idols, right, are these desires that are burning out of control in our lives. 
their inordinate desire. So it may even be desires for good things that have gotten to become ultimate things and God things to take the place of God, and so now they're raging out of control. Let me see if I can break it down for you like this. Have you ever been sitting around a campfire, right? And they can't, you're roasting some marshmallows to make some s'mores, okay? And so you got to get them... Just, I mean, some of you are like, man, I just, I just want the inside a little bit warm. Others of you are like, I want the entire thing on fire for minutes and crusty black stuff all around, right? But you know how you like your s'more, right? But you're sitting around the campfire and the fire begins to kind of, right, it's just kind of smoldering there and then somebody walks up with a can of lighter fluid and they begin to squirt it onto the fire. What happens? Right? It just begins to rage out of control. That's what John is describing. He's saying that fire in and of itself is a good thing. It keeps you warm. You can cook food. But whenever you infuse it with lighter fluid, it grows to a point where it is raging and can become out of control and burn your entire life down. That's what John is saying. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the over-desire, even for something that's good in life. Right, can become a God thing, which can ultimately become a destructive thing for you and for me. This is why the King James Version, in the old school version, translated it, not desires, but lusts. Things that you were lusting after and felt like you had to have in order to be satisfied, significant, successful, or stable and secure. Right? So let's take a look at these three things real quick before we move on. Each of these raw materials has to do with what we order our lives around. And, and there's pressure coming from all angles of life to bow down to these things. The over-desires of the flesh have to do with ordering your life around your appetites. Ordering your life around your appetites. Okay? And so this can, you can order your life around food and drink. Right? You need food and you need water in order to survive. Right? If you didn't know it, now you do. Right? You, you can only go so long without water, you can only go so long without food before your body eats away all its fat reserves, and then you die and wither away and waste into nothingness. Right? So you need food and drink. But whenever there's an over-desire for food and drink, whenever there's an over-desire, it you, you turns you into what, you know, when, the, when, the, when the folks in medieval times talked about, not the place downtown, but in that era of history, right? whenever they talked about the seven deadly sins, one of them was gluttony. Right? Because you consume and consume and eat so much that you become uh, at times obese and unhealthy and all kinds of things begin to happen in your life because there's an over-desire for food. I know people who will eat a meal and they will clean the dishes and while they clean the dishes, they're talking about what they're going to have at the next meal. And while they clean the dishes from that meal, what am I going to have at the next meal? Their life is ordered around food. Right? It ex- can become an excessive desire. Right? Or it can swing to the other side right, where your life is ordered around food and what you don't eat. Right? So obesity can be a part of that. Or anorexia can be a part of that. Right? On either side of that spectrum, food and drink, when you order your life around it, becomes unhealthy. Right? And so you have things like the Food Network and the Food Channel and food blogs and foodies and all those kinds of things. Good food is good, right? But when it becomes a God thing and an ultimate thing in your life is ordered around it, it can become a destructive thing. Rest and leisure. There's nothing wrong with rest and leisure, but there is something wrong with living for the weekend. Okay? There is something wrong with living for the weekend. If your life is ordered around and addicted to rest and leisure, then you may have chosen a job in a very worldly way rather than a very world-loving kind of way. 
right? How can I make the most money to buy the most toys to use those on the weekend? And so I'll work Monday through Friday so I can enjoy all the things that I bought on the weekend until I come around. So it's this never-ending cycle of worshiping rest and leisure. It's the appetites of our bodies. What about the lust of the eyes? Or the desires of the eyes, right? It has to do with ordering our life around our appearances. Around appearances. The eyes, listen, church, they're not neutral. So many, like, so many people, like the little sentiment, like the eyes are the windows to the soul, but they're not. The eyes are the lamp to the soul, right? In other words, they don't show you what's in there, but they shape what's in there. That's what your eyes do, right? right? And so they, they are the lamp to the body. That's what Jesus says in the Gospels. And so whatever you spend your time looking at, Whatever you fix your attention on inordinately and overly will ultimately shape the way that you live, right? Physical appearances, body image, fitness, beauty, fashion. Is there anything wrong with wanting to be fit? No, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be fit. But I'll tell you what, whenever you stand in front of the mirror and you worship the thing that you see there, that is idolatry. When your whole life is ordered around, right? Going from a 12-pack to a 6-pack, okay? When your whole life is ordered around, okay? Beauty counters and online orders, right? Of the next greatest beauty wrinkle cream that's going to get rid of all of the stuff, okay? Right? That, that is idolatry. There's nothing wrong with beauty. There's nothing wrong with fitness. There's nothing wrong with being fashionable. But when your whole life is built upon projecting this image through fitness and fashion and beauty, then you're bowing at an altar that ultimately one day will leave you hollow and empty. So physical appearances... Material appearances, homes and cars and possessions, professional appearances, resumes, networks and connections. When your life gets ordered around those things, right, it becomes a good thing, right? Is it good to be connected to other people in your profession? Absolutely. But when your whole life is ordered around those connections and the circles that you run in and how you're going to leverage those for the advancement of your career, and that is the center of your life, that is idolatry. Right? What home you're going to live in. What zip code you're going to have. Right? All of those things can rise to the place of idolatry. And then finally, the pride of life, John says. And the pride of life, listen, while the desire of the eyes has to do with ordering our life around appearances, the desires of the flesh around our appetites, the pride of life has to do with ordering our life around our ego. Around our ego. Around our personal pride our personal brand and this is the most perhaps dangerous of all three c.s lewis said it this way he said pride can be used to beat down the simpler vices teachers often appeal to a boy's pride to make him behave decently in other words you're above that right many a man has overcome cowardice or ill temper by learning to think they are beneath his dignity that is by pride he says ha the devil laughs He is perfectly content to see you become chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided he is setting up in you a dictatorship of pride. He would be just as happy to see your ingrown toenails cured as if, if he could give you cancer. 
For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. That's how dangerous pride is in our lives. Right? Think of the Hall of Mirrors at the fair. Whenever you walk through right, that, that trailer, it smells like B.O. and Doritos. Okay? When you walk through that trailer and you're looking at the hall of mirrors, right? You see yourself reflected everywhere, but you never see yourself as you actually are, and that's what pride does. It inflates, right? It's ordering your life around your ego. And it results in gossip and jealousy and backbiting and a party spirit, always having your feelings hurt, right? If your feelings are constantly being hurt, if you're constantly being wounded by other people, the problem may not be in them, but it may be in you. And listen, I know that firsthand. Okay? I do. If you're constantly touchy and irritable, you're always right. You're always contradicting other people. You always have a better story to tell at the party, right? To give a one-up to somebody else, right? That is the pride of life. The pride of applause. I want recognition from other people. I want respect from other people. I want people to acknowledge my giftedness, that I'm a gift to God and a gift to them and a gift to everyone else on the face of the earth. The pride of power. I want my way. I want it now. And I'm willing to run over anyone who stands in my way of getting it. The pride of control. I want to be in control. I'm not going to set myself aside for others and no one else is going to get the best of me. I'm going to retain the reins to my life and I'm going to move my life forward. It's a life that's absolutely absorbed with self. How do you recognize that? Let me give you a few tests. First of all, when the things of the world dominate your thoughts and crowd out serious thoughts of God, then maybe the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh have begun to consume your attention and affection. And they've crowded out thoughts of God. And listen, that pressure comes from marketing and advertising agencies, and it can come from governing authorities, it can come from friends and family who moved on the street, people that you know in the course of conversations who have risen to positions of power, who have accumulated wealth, and all of a sudden you see what they have, and it begins to awaken this appetite within you for all those same kinds of experiences and possessions. Right? Do the things of the world crowd out serious thoughts of God? Number two, when the things of the world dominate our conversations with others. Right? When we're not engaged in serious, thoughtful reflection and conversation around the Scriptures, around the things of God, but it's always the things of the world. Right? That's all we talk about. Right? That's all we talk about is right, how, much, how much we've sold, how much we've built, how, much, how many fish we caught, right? Right? How many animals we've killed and skinned and how many vacations we've gone on and trips and experiences and what we're doing with our homes. And if that crowds out any serious conversation of the things of God, then it may be that the pride of eye, your eyes and the pride of the flesh and the uh, 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 desires of those things and the pride of life has pushed out and displaced the Lord at the center of your life. When we cannot dispose of things of the world for divine purposes. In other words, you can't sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom. When we're discontent, listen, with our portion of the world's possessions. In other words, we're shot through with worry and anxiety about what we don't have. 
on the flip side of that, when we are unable to trust God with the blessings of His providence, when we're shot through with worry about the things that we do have and hanging on to them, right? Desire of the eyes, desire of the flesh. When we relate to others only on the basis of worldly distinctions or we sacrifice godly principles for worldly possessions, all of those things are like red flags, like warning lights on the dashboards of our lives that something else has become the center and controlling factor that we're ordering our lives around. And we're all under pressure to do that every single day. So how do we respond? I believe we have help here in this text. How do we respond to the pressure? I'm going to give you three things really quick. I promise they're going to be quick. The first one is this. You've got to see through the threat. You have to learn to see through the threat. We must recognize that, listen, all of the tribal gods that are out there, and in Israel's history, there were tons of tribal gods that they interacted with, that all the tribal gods, they are not true gods. They are not true gods. All of these false gods are not true gods. One thing you need to notice in our text, listen, church, is all the repetition that's there. There's countless repetition. I don't know if you picked up on it as I read, right? But all this repetition, okay? In our text, six times we read the words, the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There's a repetition of the extended list of dignitaries who were present, right? All of these city officials, we read it multiple times. There's repetition of all the band instruments that were being played. You see that multiple times in the text. There's repetition of the verb made, which creates bookends. On the front end in verse 1 and the back end in verse 15, you have this image that bookends our text that talks about Nebuchadnezzar made this image. There's a repetition of the verb set up. It shows up eight times in the text. That it was set up, it was set up, it was set up, it was set up. There's a repetition of the scope of the people present. That all the peoples, nations, and languages that made up the empire were there. Now, one of the things that the people who taught me how to study the Bible taught me, and I've tried to teach other people, is that one of the things you look for in Bible study is repetition. Because oftentimes repetition indicates emphasis. That the author's emphasizing something. So what might the author be emphasizing in all of this repetition that he gives us in Daniel chapter 3 in the first 15 verses? Dignitaries and band instruments and verbs and he's over and over again. It's like, this, like all of this pomp and circumstance. He wants to emphasize all of this that's going on to show us that in the middle of it is this hollow, deceptive image. This, that, that is unsubstantial. Right? He wants us to see all the, the music that's being played, all the dignitaries, the red carpet and strolls and marches, of all the people prostrating themselves there before him. That it's something that a man has made that he's now commanding to be worshipped that's been formed by human hands. Because the author, I believe, wants us to see through the threat. To understand that what they're facing and the pressure that they're under is in the end hollow and empty and unsubstantial. And so I believe what he would want us to do, the author would want us to do, right? The reason that he overdoes this description is because he's mocking what's taking place there on the plain of Dura. When all these people bow before that image. 
right? It's almost like sarcasm to some degree, right? He's mocking all of this to say that these people would fall down before an image that was made by a man. And listen, if you and I are going to withstand the pressure that is placed with, upon us, then our hearts, not, not only externally, but our hearts try to produce internally, say, bow down to the appetites, bow down to the appearance, bow down to your reputation and your ego. Order your life around those things. If you're going to resist it, you've got to learn to see the hollowness of your appetites and the hollowness of your appearance and the hollowness of your ego as the centering factor of your life. You've got to learn to mock it. In the same way that, the, the, that Elijah does with the prophets of Baal in 2 Kings, I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter 18, right? When, when, when Elijah's there and right, they, he puts a choice before the people of what God they're going to serve, and so they set up this test, right? The prophets of Baal come, and Elijah comes, and they build an altar, and they dig a moat around the altar, and they fill it with water, and Elijah says, here's the deal. You guys are going to get the first half of the day. I'm going to get the second half of the day. And the first half of the day, you guys are going to pray to your gods, and whatever God comes and consumes this offering on the altar, that is the real God. That is the one that we should worship. That is the one whom we should serve and bow down to, right? And so they set up a test, and the prophets of Baal, they're dancing around the altar. They're doing all kinds of things. And Baal does not respond. The altar sits still. There is no fire that consumes the sacrifice that's laying there. And Elijah, I love what Elijah does. Because he says, hey listen, maybe your God went on vacation. Right? Maybe he's traveling. Perhaps he's in another country. Right? He doesn't have long distance service. So he doesn't hear what you're trying to say to him. And then he says, well, maybe your God's just really deep in thought. Okay? And he's musing on something, right? He's pondering something very heavily, and he cannot be disturbed. And then my favorite, he's like, maybe your God is relieving himself. Maybe he went to the bathroom, right? And he's, he's just cannot, right? he has a do not disturb sign on the door. Right? So he's mocking the, the idols of the nations, right? Because they are no true God. They're a tribal God, but they're not a true God. So he's mocking them, right? And I think that's what the author of Daniel is doing here. He's saying there's a threat that's coming down upon these three young men. But I want you to know something, church, that there is nothing that threatens their significance, their safety, their security, and their satisfaction that comes from the hands of men. Nothing. And so he begins to mock them, and you and I must do the same. Right? We must look at all of those things that we're told that we ought to bow down to. All of those things that tell us you're, you'll be satisfied if you achieve this. You'll be significant if you can accomplish this. You will be successful in the eyes of men if you rise to this stature. Right? We need to look at all those things and say, listen, you, you, you are great gifts, but you are useless gods. Learn to mock those things. Right? So you look at your bank statement Whenever you look at your bank statement, you go, listen, it is a great gift to have money in the bank, but that is a terrible God to be counting the zeros behind the zero in our bank account. Because right, you can have seven zeros and still be flat broke. Right? It's a great gift to have money, right? but they're, it's a terrible God. Possessions and homes. You can say, God, thank you for this place you provided us to live and shelter over our heads, but your home will be a terrible, destructive God. 
right? Vehicles that you drive, relationships and connections that you have, right? The number of shoes in your closet. Uh Uh-oh, right? The number of guns in your gun safe. Uh Uh-oh, right? Those are great gifts and they are terrible gods. Leisure and activity and hobbies, terrible gods. You order your life around those things and they become destructive. You've got to learn to mock them. And the only way you can do that is if you see through the threat. Know that they have no ultimate say over your life. And let them know that. Second of all, what else? We've got to take the scenic route. Okay? Now, I know some of you, maybe you travel some, and whenever you're driving through uh, from point A to point B, right, the fastest, most expeditious way to get there is to take the interstate, right? Right, because they cut those things in as straight a line as they can, but sometimes, right, whenever you take the interstate, you miss so much beauty. You miss so many experiences whenever you take the shortcut, the fastest, most expeditious way to get there. We've experienced this over the course of our last vacation. Right, we could take uh, I-40 out of, uh, uh, through Knoxville uh, over to where you cut down to go into Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg, or we could have cut off and listen. There were some windy little roads. Okay, and I'm telling you, we t- it felt like we turned every two minutes, okay, onto another little back street and back country road, and we were winding all around. But there was so much that we saw and experienced that we never would have seen if we just went, right? If we just went over and down. And the same is true in life. See, these three young men, they could have taken a shortcut, they could have reasoned with themselves. And said, hey, listen, if we don't bow down, they're going to throw us in the furnace and we're going to lose the opportunity to continue and, and to shape and influence the culture here, right? Or they could have reasoned with themselves and said, listen, we'll bow down with our knees, but, but not in our hearts, right? Our hearts will stay pure before the Lord, but we'll bow down with our knees, right? They could have rationalized all kinds of ways to take a shortcut around this, but rather they choose the long, hard path of obedience in the same direction and continue to walk with God and honor God and obey God they take the scenic route and had they not taken the scenic route church they never would have experienced the miraculous deliverance that Stanley's going to tell us about next week from the burning fiery furnace if they had taken the shortcut See, part of withstanding the pressure is to understand that where God calls us to is to obey long term and not take shortcuts and try to circumvent things that He has planned for us to see and to experience because their character was formed for this moment back in chapter 1 whenever they refused to take the king's food, but their, char- their faith is now formed going forward because they see God's miraculous deliverance. They never would have seen if they bent the knee. And I wonder how often in our lives there are times in which we don't see God show up in amazing and miraculous and supernatural ways because we bent the knee. Third, and finally, we must worship God alone. Worship God alone. See, we've come to see that we have to come to see that at the heart of this pressure to bow down and serve this idol is a call away from the first commandment. Right? That God had given to his people. That you should what? 
have no other gods before me. And I've said before that we have no other gods before him and there is no other God beside him. In fact, there is no true God below him. That he is the one only, one and only God, King, Lord, Creator. And in fact, in verses 12, in verse 12 it says there was... When, when they, these Chaldeans, lob these accusations at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he says, there are certain Jews, O king, they do not bow their knees. They do not worship the golden image that you set up or your gods. Because for these men, it was a first commandment issue that they would have no other god. They would look to no one and nothing else for their security for their satisfaction, and for their significance. They would set up no idol on the plains of Dura, nor no other idol within their hearts, but they would worship and serve God and God alone. So they would echo the words here, or Peter would echo his, their words, perhaps, in uh, Acts chapter 5, when the, when the council of the Jews is trying to get them to keep from right, preaching in the name of Jesus. And what do they say? We must obey God rather than men. God rather than men, because we must worship and serve Him alone. There is no one who comes before Him, and in fact, there's no one who's beside Him in our hearts, but He is singularly set out as our object of devotion and affection. Worship the Lord alone. If we're going to stand up under the pressure and see what kind of miraculous things He would do. You know, I find it interesting here, as we close, that there was another Jewish man who would face the same kind of demand. Who would he worship? Who would he serve? Whose demands would he meet? In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, we're told that before Jesus enters into His public ministry, He's taken out into the wilderness for a season of trial and testing, 40 days of fasting, and toward the end of that time, Satan appears to him. And when Satan shows up on the scene, he begins to try to get Jesus to take a shortcut. Here's Jesus, right? He's left the throne room of heaven, right? With everything under his authority, everything under his power, everything under his feet, right? He knew what belonged to him. And here he is now, God incarnate, right? God in the flesh, who knew what his purpose and mission was as he moved towards the cross. And Satan shows up there in the wilderness and says, I can give you all authority back if you would just but bow and worship me. I can cause all these kingdoms of the earth to come and submit to you. And what does Jesus say? How does he respond? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only shall him shall you serve. You see, what these three young men do here in Daniel chapter 3 is a forerunner of what Jesus would do in the wilderness as He refused to bend His knee to any other false god, any other idol, any other approach to accomplishing His mission and achieving salvation for mankind. Rather, He bent His knee to the Lord and even in Gethsemane, He would bend His knee once again as He wrestled with, my like, God, if there's any other way to save all of these foolish people, right? Can we choose that? 
Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You shall worship the Lord your God alone, and only Him shall you serve. You see it in the wilderness, and you see it in the garden, and you see it at the cross, where Jesus would ultimately be strung up, nails piercing His hands, nails piercing His feet, in our place. Because He wouldn't take the shortcut. Because He chose to worship the Lord alone. Because he saw through the deception. He saw what the end result of glory would be. Not just for himself, but for his father. And out of love for you and I, he took the scenic route. And God did something miraculous that we could not do for ourselves through his life and through his death. Which was atone for sin and provide provide a sacrifice that was sufficient to cleanse us of all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our unrighteousness to make us clean and pure and holy to be able to stand in the presence of God as His children, not objects of His wrath. Because He didn't take the shortcut. Listen, there's pressure pressing down on you. It's pressing down on me. You see it destroying families. You see it destroying communities because people are they're bent their knees to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And the author of Daniel would say, there is a pressure release valve. And it comes through seeing through the threat, taking the scenic route and worshiping God and serving Him alone. This morning, church, I want to call us to do the same as God's people. Be faithful to His commission on our lives, as faithful to our, His call for us as a church, and that we would set Him apart as Lord and God alone within our hearts. So that no matter what the prevailing winds of the culture may, how they may blow, and what pressure they may place, that within our hearts, we would not be captivated by our desires or our pride, but be captivated by Jesus who walked the long and lonely road. You thought these three young men were alone. Jesus couldn't even get his disciples to stay awake while he prayed in the garden. He was utterly alone on the cross. Even his father turned his back on him. Yet he continued to walk forward in obedience and submission. May we do the same. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come encouraged by what we see in your word to know that there is no threat that man can bring that can ultimately, that can ultimately do us in. But out of your great love, Father, you sent your Son who refused to take the shortcuts. He took the scenic route because he saw through the threat and he served and worshipped you alone and through his life and through his death, God, you've made a way for us to be reconciled to you, for relationship to be restored to you 
for us to know and walk with you, for your Holy Spirit to be poured out on our lives so that we could be comforted by him, so that we could be empowered by him, so that we could be encouraged by him, so that we could experience his conviction over sin in our lives and repent and turn from that and to know the grace, forgiveness, and healing that you're able to bring. Because he took the scenic route all the way to the cross. And through that, there was miraculous deliverance and resurrection from the grave. Father, help us not to bow, to yield to the pressure, to conform to the ways of this world. And as we hold tight to you and cling to you and walk with you in faithfulness, knowing that you are the God who can deliver us from the hands of any king, that you are the God who can deliver us from the hands of of any authority. That you are the God who can make us secure and satisfied and significant in your eyes because of our relationship to you as your children. That we would hold fast to that truth. And God, may we 